Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Well, last week we began a series called Why Church Matters. Uh, the series is, is meant to be an honest exploration of a kind of a central question. And the central question is, uh, does church remain uh, relevant or necessary to modern life? Uh, last week I began the series by uh, kind of describing some of the recent movements away from church, movements like the evangelical movement uh, or a movement called Empty the Pews. And I wanted to provide just a little bit of clarity uh, related to those movements. Maybe you've never heard of them. Uh, maybe you're kind of listening to some of those voices. Uh, but just for clarity, I wanted to, to make sure that it's understood that I don't in any way want to kind of condemn these movements. Uh, but rather, I think some of these, I think these movements are critiquing the church in some important ways, right? Uh, that there's some things that are coming out of these movements that I think the church needs to hear. Uh, to which there's a lot in these movements to, with which I find resonance. Uh, but my posture is not, to con- the, is not the condemnation of these movements, rather it's the acknowledgement of these movements and then the wrestling with trying to discern what might be true within these movements that can then help the church moving forward. Uh, and so it's, it's really just an honest dealing with uh, the message of these movements away from the church and sometimes away from faith Uh, that kind of brings the central question of does church remain necessary to and important to kind of modern life. So uh, I didn't want it to come across last week uh, as as though I was kind of up here just condemning these things, but rather just acknowledging their presence, uh, saying, hey, is there anything that we can learn and listen to that will help better the church for the future? So, so I want you to see the, kind of my pastoral posture in all of this. Uh, just as a quick recap, what we learned last week is that the church uh, is the spirit-formed community that centers around the person of Jesus Christ and the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, and while the church has certainly faced many struggles over the centuries and is far from perfect, this, these kind of communities, this new community that God is building around the world and through all kinds of local communities is the mechanism that God has designed to bring his good news into the world. Uh, and, and so if we are then, what we talked about then is a little bit of social movement theory and we said, hey, if we're going to faithfully fulfill this vocation of sharing the good news with the world, then we need to kind of recapture the passion of a movement and not just kind of get lost in the trappings of institution, right? Uh, so we need to maintain the passion of movement and, and along with that, begin to tangibly embody the ways of Jesus in the world, not just talk about ideas or ideologies. Uh, so over the last several decades, in fact, what has happened is we've almost exclusively come to understand faith as an exercise of the mind, right? And if we're going to recapture the passion of a movement, if we're going to embody the way of Jesus in the world, then it's important that that a key part of the church's future is to move our faith from our heads to our hands. Are you with me? Uh, There's kind of this embodiment part. So now, while in our day and age, faith has become almost exclusively understood as an exercise of the mind, what do you believe, what is the doctrine, these kind of like essential mind exercises almost, the, the reality is it hasn't always been this way, right? It hasn't always been this way. Uh, that when we look at the life of the early church, what we find is, is that they understand faith 
um, in, in a more holistic way, that it isn't just this idea of belief, believing the right thing or believing like I do. Uh, but I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that thinking or learning isn't important, right? It is. And so while faith hasn't always been understood as a purely intellectual exercise, what I want to say and what I want to explore this morning is that learning has always been a key part of a living faith. That learning has always been a key part of a living faith. And that's what I want to lean into this morning. So I invite you to turn to our passage that will become familiar. We're going to, we looked at it a little bit last week. We'll look at it again this week and then next week as well. But it's Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 42, uh, reading through the end of the chapter. It says this. Uh, they, that is some of the first uh, believers, the, the new believers in Jesus Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, they had everything in common, and they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, and praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, occasionally, I have the opportunity to teach theology classes to folks who are in the process toward ordination uh, in the Church of the Nazarene. It's, it's something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, I, I, I enjoy the kind of rich and uh, discussions and explorations that we have. And so in those theology classes, when we're learning about ecclesiology, which is the fancy word for the study of the church, I often will ask, um, I often will start with this question. Uh, if you started stripping everything away from like the life of the church as we know it, at what point would it stop being church? Um, it's an interesting question and it usually yields a whole bunch of um, responses. And the first thing that everyone agrees on is uh, a building with ample parking is not necessary to the life of a church, right? Uh, that's always the first thing that people say. Well, you can take away the building and you still have the church. And, and it's funny uh, that intellectually we sort of know that, but man, how we love our buildings, right? Uh, we, we love, we, we, we're so infatuated with buildings, but, but intellectually at least, we, we understand that the building is not central to the life of the church. Uh, but then we start exploring, like, what if you were to take away the programs of the church? Uh, or what about the music? If you took away the music and uh, maybe the, the sound system and the instruments and the worship leader, no offense, Daniel, uh, that came along with it, like, if you started just kind of getting rid of those things, would it still be church? Um, and then maybe if it was, what if you took away the preaching? I'm so glad I didn't hear an amen there. Um, so, like, what if you took away the preaching? Is it still church? Uh, what if you took away the sacraments? Uh, it's an interesting question. As I said, it usually gets a whole broad spectrum of responses. And to be truthful, as a leader in a church and as a pastor, it's a question that I've asked myself a whole bunch of times uh, and that I've wrestled with continually as, as just trying to like understand that the church is changing, culture is constantly changing, and, and there's, there's no such thing as going back, there's only going forward, right? And so what is church going to look like and what, is the, what are the essential pieces of this thing that we call the church? Uh, and, and for clues... Um, 
pastors, uh, Bible nerds, often turn to this text uh, in Acts chapter 2. Now we do that not because this group of people uh, were perfect or that they had everything perfect, right? Uh, In fact, I want to, I hope I illustrated that last week, but I want to remind us again that that it really didn't take long for those earliest Christian communities to get pretty messed up. That if you read the letters of Paul, who is writing to these early communities, uh, they are wrestling with some really, really difficult things in the life, in their kind of shared life together. So we don't turn to Acts chapter 2 uh, to idolize this group of people that, that they had everything figured out and they were doing it perfectly, but rather we turn to these com- communities that are, that are that we have the witness of in Acts chapter two to see what was essential to their life together before it got surrounded with programming and building and parking lots and salaries and budgets and all of that, right? So before they had kind of the weight of all these things that churches need to manage, what was essential to their life together? Like, in other words, before there were conferences on Christian leadership, before there were coaching networks that promised to give you the tools you need to grow your church, to double the size of your church this year, right? Before any of that stuff existed, these, these, these people, we kind of look to their witness to see what was essential to their life together. And, and as I was preparing for this series, uh, I was struck by this opening phrase in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And so next week we're going to kind of explore this more, but today we're going to hone in on on one phrase, which is, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It it seems to me that based on the witness of Acts chapter 2, that central to this gathering of the earliest Christians was giving some attention some intentional time to the apostles' teaching. Now, of course, we don't, have, we don't have an outline of like exactly what was being taught. I mean, we could obviously kind of get that from the rest of Scripture, but we don't know exactly what form that took. But, but the reality is that there was, that for these first Christians in their gathered life together, central to that was the proclamation of the word. Uh, now, I know that when we hear the word, what we think is the scriptures, but at this point in Acts chapter 2, as they're kind of living their life together, they don't have this book as we have it, right? And so we learned in our beautiful gospel series that when we talk about the word, we're not primarily talking about the scriptures themselves, but what the scriptures point us to, who is Jesus Christ, the living word, right? So central to the earliest gatherings of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ was a proclamation of the living word, who is Jesus Christ, Central was the proclamation of the living Christ. Now, I, I'm a, I have a little bit of, of a cynical streak in me, and, and so I know exactly what you guys are thinking. This is just a commercial for the validity of sermonizing. Right? I, I hear it. I hear it. I hear it in my own head, right? So, I, so don't think, but I don't want you to hear that. I don't want you to hear this as me trying to validate my life's work, okay? But rather, what I want you to hear is, is, is this, the, the historical and biblical witness is that these Christian communities had as an essential part of their life together the learning, the implications of the Christian claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Central was an exploration of the implications of the Christian claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
In fact, when we think about the gospel, we often think about certain, certain tenets, facts that we need to believe, right? But at its core, the gospel is an announcement. Have you ever thought about it like that? The gospel is an announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's not a statement about someday in the future. That is a statement about right here and right now. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so these earliest Christian communities were just trying to work out the implications and the applications of what it means to claim and make this announcement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, but here's the thing. Just like our brothers and sisters from centuries ago, just as we are, were products of their time. In other words, their thinking, their perspective was deeply shaped by the culture around them, right? Uh, and so during their gatherings, what, so they're being formed in a particular way already by the culture around them. We can't help that. They couldn't help that, right? And I hope that we can offer grace to our brothers and sisters in the past to say they were products of our time. And I hope that 200, 300, 400 years from now, people can look back at us and say, you know, they were a product of their time as well. But doing their best to work out what it means to call Jesus Christ Lord. You with me? Does this make sense? Uh, and so their gatherings were this exploration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And they were doing that. This, this learning was central to their life together so that they wouldn't just be formed by the culture and perspective around them. Yeah, I mean, they can't help but do that. But they were doing it so that their mindset could be formed according to the kingdom of God and the ways of Jesus. And so, the, so in other words, it, was, it wasn't just for the purpose of information that they were gathering to learn, but it was for transformation of themselves, their perspective, and thereby the world. So it wasn't just faith is, here's what I think about all this stuff, but let's gather together, let's learn, let's explore the implications and how we can apply the message of Jesus so that we can then go and have the transformation of ourselves and the world. Are you with me? Okay. So, well, last week we spent some time Kind of being honest about some of the mess-ups of the church, today I want to celebrate the church. Uh, because the reality is, is that for all the mess-ups and imperfections, history has shown us that through the application of God's word from our earliest brothers and sisters, and by them exploring implications of the apostles' teaching, the world is a far better place. Right? Amen? Can we believe in the work of the church as broken as she might be? Right? So here's, so I want, I'm making a little bit of a distinction between application and implication, and that's intentional. So here, when I say application, here's what I mean. Application is putting uh, something explicit into operation. So putting something into operation. And let me, uh, let me just give you an example. As Christian communities, uh, our earliest brothers and sisters, as they were reading about and, and bearing witness to this message of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus about how they ought to care for the poor, what they did is they began to apply that teaching by putting it into operation. And one such man uh, was Basil, B-A-S-I-A-I-I-L, not, not Basil, uh, as in the herb, but Basil, okay? So, so Basil, of, uh, he's the bishop of Caesarea, uh, somewhere in the 300s, 370s, uh, and he, he wrote regularly about the plight of the poor. 
And he wrote regularly trying to get, he wrote that because he was trying to get his brothers and sisters to, to put themselves in someone else's shoes and understand what would it be like to be in the position of someone who has nothing. Because Basil was actually wealthy. Uh, but as a wealthy person and a follower of Jesus, he was consistently trying to place himself, himself in the shoes of someone who didn't have much resource, okay? Which, by the way, is central to the gospel. The gospel is persistently about us putting ourselves in someone else's shoes. It is persistently about seeing things from the other perspective or from the underside, from those who are in the margins or those who are oppressed. That is what the gospel is about, and it's what it draws us to, and good old Basil was doing that. Now, so what he began to do is he began to develop ways then to care for the poor. This is a history lesson, and I can already see like everybody going, oh, history class. Okay, stick with me. Uh, it gets good, I promise. So, so he began to develop ways to care for the poor, including starting one of the first of what we would come to call today a soup kitchen. Uh, it, was, it was a place where the poor could come and get fed. When, when they didn't have regular food, kind of like what we do with Renee's Hope, right? We, we, we go in there, we spend a little bit of time, we provide this warm meal to those who are homeless and, and maybe don't have a lot of resource or don't know where exactly their, their next meal may be coming from. And so he developed what we would call a soup kitchen. Now, around this same time, herbal medicine was being discovered and more widely recognized as legitimate. And so here's what he decided to do. He decided to build a freestanding institution that would care for the sick as well as the needy. And uh, I'm reading this real page turner uh, called The First Thousand Years. It's a, it's a thousand year history of Christianity for the first thousand years, okay? It's a real page turner. Uh, and, and so here's what I found out, uh, and I'm going to quote it to you, because uh, that's just how amazing it is. All right, here, here's what it says about this institution that Basil was working on. Basil's institution was much more than a hospice or poorhouse. In fact, one writer says that it served those who are seriously ill and especially in need of medical care. And Basil's friends say that it was designed to provide a place where the sick would be cared for by trained physicians who were schooled in the arts of medicine. And it differed from poorhouses and other forms of medical care in several ways. First, it included facilities where patients could stay during the course of their treatment. Second, it engaged trained medical professionals, doctors and nurses, to diagnose and provide treatment to patients. And finally, its services were offered free of charge. Okay? Now, it sounded real familiar up until the last one. <laughs> but the, what we would call the modern-day hospital was started because a guy in the 370s was seeking to apply the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's amazing, right? So, so here's the thing. In, in what, what we can learn so much, this, this, this whole series about why church matters is kind of like we're trying to live in two worlds. We're trying to understand how can the church move forward into the future, but in order to do so, we must learn from our past, right? So I've been doing a ton of reading on the early church. And, and here's the thing, is like in, in our kind of modern lives, we tend, to, we tend to do two things. We turn faith into a purely intellectual exercise, and we apply the teachings of Jesus strictly to ourselves. But what our earliest brothers and sisters understood is that it was a both and, that, that 
if, if Jesus is having this message, it has an impact on me personally and can transform my life, but also has the power to transform the world. And so what Basil of Caesarea does is I'm going to start an institution to care for the sick and the needy using this new thing called herbal medicine and those who are trained in it, and it became the modern day hospital. Yay, right? This is the application of Jesus' word. It's amazing. But it wasn't just application, putting something into action. It was also the exploration of the implications of the gospel. And here's what I mean by implication. An implication is drawing conclusion from something even though it isn't explicitly stated. Okay? So application is putting something into action. Implication is is exploring possibilities even though it's not explicitly stated. So drawing a conclusion even though something isn't explicitly stated. And again, what history shows us is that these early faith communities, while far from perfect, were faithful at gathering together to learn and explore the implications of the gospel. So in his brilliant book, Another Real Page Turner, called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Author, like, you guys are like, I always thought Andy was a nerd, and now it is confirmed, right? Uh, so Al, there's this guy named Alan Kreider. He writes, he, he, what he's doing in this book, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, is he's exploring the improbable rise of Christianity inside of the Roman Empire, right? So, so how does kind of a movement on the margins surrounding this carpenter turn into the Christianity that we know it today, particularly since it was like the roots of it were starting in the Roman Empire. How does that happen? And Alan Kreider actually like kind of explores that. And so what he talks about is, and central to his thesis, is about how Christianity comes to rise in popularity even inside of the Roman Empire, is he talks about that these early Christian communities, their life was so attractive and so countercultural that people just were drawn to it. In other words, I, and I want you to hear this, evangelical church, for the first several centuries of Christianity, not a single church that we know of had anything closely resembling what we would call an evangelistic program. Yeah, wow's right. Because what they were centered on is this, this life lived in the way of Jesus and it became something like a city on a hill <laughs> that couldn't be hidden. Uh, these, these early Christian communities became something like salt and light. Their, their life together was so attractive. And here, here's a couple of things where maybe not explicitly stated uh, in the teachings that were kind of like rotating around and uh, as, the, as the Bible is getting canonized and all these kinds of things and they're getting some readings, some writings, Christian writings, these things weren't explicitly stated but they were exploring implications of what it means for this announcement of Jesus as Lord. And here's a couple of things. In particular, what made them unique, these are just a couple of examples of, of among many, is that uh, these early Christian communities began to welcome women and children into their fellowship. Now for us, that doesn't seem like much at all, right? Uh, but for them, it was a revolutionary move when women and children at the time were considered second-class humans in the same category as property. And, and so it was 
a welcoming and a drawing in of a crowd that, that mostly was just totally put aside, okay? But here's the thing. It, it wasn't just that they were welcoming them into their shared life or into their fellowship. It was that the, the women were involved in the life of the community. They were involved in helping to serve the poor and the prisoner and the sick. And then Alan Kreider, the, the author of the, perfect fer- the patient ferment of the early church, writes this dynamic sentence. Are you ready for it? The churches couldn't function without women. Ladies, I wanted a little better showing from you, right? Uh, To which I would offer a hearty amen, right? I mean, it's just like, and this, for us, it's like, okay, yeah, yep, that's right. But for them, it was this revolutionary thing that drew people into their fellowship. And here's the thing, children weren't just welcomed. But among these earliest communities, children were actually invested in and so that, they, so that they would grow up in the faith, right? So like one of, the, one of the original distinguishing markers of Christian communities was children's programming. <laughs> and not just programming, but investment in, right? And probably not programming. Genuine, intentional investment in the next generation so that they can grow up in the faith. And so for thousands of years, and here's the result of that, for thousands of years then, the church has been passing on the faith to their children and discipled them in ways of love that are embodied in Jesus Christ. You are here today confessing Jesus Christ as Lord because our earliest brothers and sisters in the faith decided that children would be welcome and invested in. Which means Christianity is this received faith. We don't just get to make it up. We have received it through a long history, right? And we are so thankful for that. Early Christian communities also conducted themselves differently in areas of business and commerce. Where in the Roman Empire, it was just typical, man, like business is is business and you ought to lie, cheat, and, and cut corners and do everything you need to get ahead. And these early Christian communities, with the announcement that Jesus is Lord, began to do business and commerce differently and with honesty, and would treat people not as a commodity, but as people, right? And so in the process of business, it wasn't dehumanizing anyone along the way, but recognizing that these folks have infinite value as a human being. And, and revolutionary things that made their life so powerfully beautiful that it drew people to them. So here's, here's what I want you to hear. I, I want you to see and to understand that the church, like central to, to what it means to be this, this new community of Christ, is, is that we should be a learning community. Um, in fact, the church was one of the first places that people came together to explore new ideas of what the world could look like when organized around the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so it was was one of the first places where where people began to explore new ideas. And and they were, so this was a group of people who were fiercely committed to new ideas. They were curious about new ideas. 
And, and they were like always just, they were very open-minded, seeking to understand what, is the, what does it mean to, to have the lordship of Jesus Christ and, and begin this process of discernment. And to which I would say how sad it is that church too often becomes a place where we must check our questions and our doubts at the door. Because the first communities were places that were curious and learners and explorers of implications. And so, man, today I'm just like, I want to sit with this this feeling of, of gratitude for the church that maybe it has, has done plenty of harm throughout history. And I think we could say, yeah, that's true, right? We could have another history lesson and look at all the, the stains on the record of the church. But can we take a moment to remember that the bride of Christ has also done a ton of good as communities committed to learning the application and the implications of the gospel announcement. In fact, I would invite you to consider this, that the church has had such a positive witness on the moral imaginations of people and on nations throughout history. That any sense that we have that that the poor should be cared for or that the destitutes should have their needs met uh, or that, that people deserve respect, any of those ideas come from God and his church. In other words, these are not ideas that come from what Paul would call the principalities and powers. These are not ideas that come from what John envisions in Revelation as the beast. Any sense of care for the poor or grace or inclination that others should be treated with respect, regardless of any kind of social status, these ideas come from the Lamb and and the gathered people of God that have borne witness to these ideas throughout history. Amen? And it all began with those first communities that devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so I would say to us now, today, thousands of years later, it is now our joy and our responsibility to carry on that work. To carry on the work of exploring application and exploring implications of the gospel announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I, I, would, I got a whole bunch of things I want to say, and, and, and so let me just kind of try to string them together. But I, I mentioned last week that I think the church is changing. <laughs> and I think I can take the I think out of it, right? I could just say the church is changing, <laughs> And there's a pretty good chance that everything that we know about what church looks like and what it means to be going to church or being in a church, there's a good chance that in as little as 50 years, it will be totally different and almost unrecognizable, right? Church is changing. But try as I may, I cannot be a Christian alone. That, that I need a community that will together commit themselves to learning exploring, listening, and working out what it means to call Jesus Lord. That the the discernment of truth is always meant to be done in community, never meant to be done in isolation, right? And and, and so maybe God kind of speaks to you, moves your heart, moves you in a direction 
then that's the time to kind of bring that up to some trusted friends in a safe environment. Maybe that's a life group. Maybe it's not. Uh, you know, it's, there's, there's a conversation to be had to discern the truth together. So truth is always meant to be discerned in community, which is why the community has to be a learning community. Has to be a learning community. And then uh, lastly, I would say this. We must understand that the Bible as we seek to understand it, right? Because this bears witness to the living word of Christ, who is our final authority. So we study the scriptures in order to more fully understand the person of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand that the Bible is an ancient text that must be interpreted, must be seek to be understood. Which is to say, uh, if our, we can't just have this attitude of, you know, the Bible says it and that settles it, <laughs> right? Because it's an ancient text, thousands of years old, that must be seek to in, understood and be interpreted. What this means is that Jesus-loving, serious Christians who are reading the same words as you and I will sometimes come to different conclusions about what the Bible says. And that's Okay. And, and, and it also means that whatever we come to believe and whatever convictions we hold, we must hold them in love. Yeah? We must hold them in love. Uh, because I may be absolutely convinced, this is it. We could pound our Bibles all day long, right? But someone else, God-fearing, Jesus-loving, serious Christian, seeking to live out the ways of Christ, may say, I don't know, I see it a little bit differently. And we learn to, to discern together, discourse with respect, and hold our beliefs in love. You with me? Come on, that's preaching. That's preaching. All right. So, we're calling this series, Why Church Matters. And so I'm trying uh, for every week to come up with a one-sentence of why church matters. So here it is. Church matters because we need a community in which we can explore the implications of the gospel announcement that Jesus is Lord. Amen? Well, I have, our, my old choir director in college used to say, we've sung more songs than we know. <laughs> which never felt very good, but uh, I would say I've probably said more than I know. Uh, so that's all I've got for this morning. Let me say a word of prayer and I'll lead us to the Lord's table today. God, we are so thankful um, for the witness of the earliest faith communities that were centered on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're thankful, Lord, that they invested uh, in one another and in children to pass along the faith so that now thousands of years later we can gather in Fort Collins in a church and confess together that Jesus Christ is Lord. But, but God, we recognize that that confession comes with a whole bunch of implications and, and things to be applied, things, actions to do, that it isn't just about kind of putting things into our, uh, into our heads, but it's, it's, it's exploring how we might live out the truth of this announcement. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us and give us discernment 
as we do that hard work. And Lord, may we do it faithfully in the community together with one another. And so Lord, I, I, I pray uh, that Emmaus Road Church would be a place of, of exploration, would be a place of, of faithfully trying to discern what it means to be your people in this time and in this place. And so God, be with us and help us to love and to respect one another. Uh, Lord, would you bring unity to our church family, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.